really, really wanted to finish the book. And I am very optimistic at this point. Uh, so that's cool. Um, I know that some of these chapters, especially 7, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, are going to be uh, of more discussion-oriented nature and probably some discussions where we don't all see eye to eye, which is fine. That will be good. But that will delay us a little bit. So, And they're longer, some of them. So, uh, so I'm glad we've been able to get through so much uh, today. That's been really good. So uh, let's uh, move to chapter 6 now. Would somebody read verses 9 through 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All right, now I want you to look at this a little bit and think about it. What they're seeing is that he's just generally saying, don't you guys know these basic elementary principles that wicked people won't inherit the kingdom of God? Therefore, you shouldn't be like these people. Don't think you'll be the exception. There are no exceptions. If you behave like this, if you do these things, you won't go to heaven. It doesn't make any difference what church role you have your name on, or how many times you've been baptized, taken the Lord's Supper, or whatever. This kind of behavior leaves you out. That's really what he's saying. Now, I want you to look at this in, in several senses. One is, you see these kind of uh, lists of sins that are sort of parallel. You have four more in chapter 6 than you had in chapter 5. Three of them, sexual immorality, effeminate homosexual, probably refer to the passive and active partners of a homosexual relationship, and then these. Um, but then I want you to think about it. The idea when he says, such were some of you, in verse 11. Now think about two or three things. That means that the when, when, when Paul went to Corinth and he talked, there were some pretty unpromising material. There were some people that really didn't have a whole lot of hope. I mean, what would you think if you went to Corinth and you found some... Uh, Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Would you think, well, I don't think there's much to do here. You know, I think we'll go on to some greener pastures. Well, who does need the gospel? Sinners, right? That's exactly what they had. But the fact that he said such were some of you also means they changed. They didn't stay how they were. The were there, that's the past tense. And that's important. He doesn't say such are some of you. In fact, he's implying it better not be an R. Keep it in the word. <laughs> now, think about this then. If bowing down to an image is idolatry before you're converted, what is bowing down to an image after you're converted? It's idolatry. Being converted doesn't change the definition of what idolatry is. Such were, some of them were idolaters. What does that mean? They separated from their images, right? All right, if hitting the bottle is drunkenness before conversion, 
What happens if you drink to excess after conversion? What do you call that? Drunkenness. Doesn't change what, what drunkenness is just because you converted. Such were some of you, what did they do? They separated from the bottle, right? Alright? If, uh, if living with another guy is homosexuality before conversion, well, after you're converted, what happens if you're together with another guy? That's homosexuality. It doesn't change the definition. And such were some of you implies they had separated from their domestic partners, right? You know, or whatever you want to call it. Alright? If being a second marriage is adultery before conversion, I understand we're not talking about a widower, widower. That, that second marriage is fine. We're not talking about somebody who divorced for the cause of fornication. We're talking about most divorced people then. Not the ones who fit into those exceptions. But if being in a second marriage is adultery before conversion, then you're converted. What is it after your conversion? Is it still adultery? Being converted doesn't change the definition of sin. What it should change is you. Such were some of you implies that they had separated from their unlawful spouses. If not, why is adultery the only sin you can continue after you're converted? You can't continue bowing down to an image, can you? You can't continue getting drunk, can you? You can't continue living with another man, can you? So why would adultery be the only sin that was okay to just keep going in after you were converted? Oh, we lost that, didn't we? Why did I lose that? Anybody know that, Chad? Okay, all right. Well, uh, let me see here. See if I can figure this out. Does that work? Hey, man, I could have won. Man, that's uh, that's the extent of my... uh, If I can keep having that memorized, then, you know, I can do it myself. I'm okay, I got it. Thank you. Alright, uh, you know, uh, some people need a lot of help, so uh, I'm one of those guys. Alright, that I think is an important consideration though, because we're in a culture that says, you know, it's okay, keep living with your man. You know, you've been, you've been washed and cleansed, now it's okay. Well, not okay to keep doing any other sin. Why would it be okay to keep committing adultery? Thoughts and comments on any of this through 6-11. You may have some comments about this. Yes. It, it seems strange to me that Paul basically drops this. Don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God here? But it kind of makes sense if you go back to the beginning. One of their biggest issues that I've seen here at Corinth is they have pride. Yeah, they came out of all this. They used to be this. But look at chapter 1. I mean... They have tried to baptize them. They were of Cephas. They were of Paul. They were, they were, uh, they were of someone. And then you go on, and all their actions are dictated by pride. You know, they are they're giving lawsuits because my pride was hurt, or I was defrauded. And then we get down to here, and it's don't you realize that this is what you were before Christ forgave you? Why do you have why why do you have that pride? And it, it goes back to us today. I mean, some of us could have come from this. 
And do we do we look at people with pride, you know, I came out of it. Why haven't you? And it it goes back or it kind of strikes me as he's just reminding them, you know, the unrighteousness, even though you you're trying to come or why would you rather be wrong? I mean, you're not acting with a proper spirit here. Don't you remember that you used to be like this before Christ? Sure, exactly. That's right. And you see they are kind of uh, in reverting back mode. And they can't do that. They can't go back into those sins. And really, you know, these are kind of the sort of things that you see in the book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, the things he's mentioning are a lot of the things they're struggling with. And so you see a good point behind that. Yes, Sam? So I think this is often taken as a reprimanding passage, but I think the ending actually makes it very hopeful um, that people who are caught in these types of sins, and I think it's, it's something that's reassuring about looking at this stuff. Yeah, great point. Yes. <laughs> Repentance and conversion cleanses and sanctifies us to where we are no longer what we were. That is very encouraging. It's also a, uh, you know, kind of an admonition, make sure, as an exhortation, make sure you stay that way. But we can be washed and totally wipe, have those sins washed away, and we're not that anymore. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes. You know, there's some uh, supporters of homosexuality that try to um, alter the meaning of this verse by saying, well, Jesus never said this specifically. Now, what I find interesting is if that's, if that's true, for one, we don't know every word that Jesus you know, said when he was here on the earth. The fact that you know, Paul here is trying you know, to, to be a genuine follower of Christ. Now, if he's making up a rule that God never said, then Paul's lying. Well, you know, we understand that the Holy Spirit was to guide the apostles into right. all the truth. Mm-hmm. Not every detail did Jesus specify. The Holy Spirit was sent to complete that work. So it really doesn't matter if Jesus had specifically said it or not. These are the words that the Spirit chose according to chapter 2. They need to be followed. Other thoughts? Yes. Question. This uh, verse 9 starts with the presumption, chapter 4, which is is connected to the previous thought. Yes. And how does that connect from the losses to this? Well, I think he's saying, you know, you ought to rather be wrong, be defrauded in verse 7. On the contrary, you wrong and defraud even to your brethren, do you not, or do you not know? I mean, you do this, or do you not even know that the unrighteous people who defraud their brethren won't go to heaven? So I think that's the connection. And then he goes ahead and broadens it out to various categories of unrighteousness that characterize them. That's the question. Other thoughts? Questions? Yes. Scott. You're saying how all those things, once you're converted, are still sinful. It's even if there wasn't such a thing as the faithful, then you would be like Christ. You would be perfect from then on that. Right. No, it's a wonderful blessing that God provides forgiveness because we needed that. Absolutely. Okay, anything else? 
see hands necessarily, so if you have one, holler. Okay, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, and all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach are the food for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. This uh, begins something that I think is true in 1 Corinthians. This is a debatable point, but I'm going to interpret a good bit this way. Uh, in this chapter, chapter 7, chapter 8, and so forth, chapter 10. So you'll see where I'm going with this, and you can evaluate this how you want. I think Paul frequently quotes from the Corinthians and answers their view. So he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are proper. All things are lawful for me, but... I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them, and so forth. I think he's quoting their slogans and responding. Now, one of the reasons I think that, if you look over chapter 10 and verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. He uses that same slogan twice there and answers it. I think Paul is picking up on their way of justifying some things. So they're saying everything's lawful for me. And Paul said, okay, but think about it. Is everything profitable? What are the consequences? I mean, you know, sometimes we're too quick to argue things on the basis of technically, well, you can't prove this is wrong. It's okay. Well, wait a minute. You know, uh, what, is it profitable? Is it best? Is it right? You know, sometimes we prove we're not very sensitive to God's will by our argumentation of, well, yeah, but, but you can't find me the passage where it specifically says, I can't do this. <laughs> is, that our, is that our mentality? Is that, is that what's going to you know, decide everything for us? Or are we going to say, wait a minute, is this really a wise thing? Is this really helpful? Is this really in tune with what the Lord says? He says, all things are lawful for you, and he comes back, I will not be mastered by anything. You know, it's wrong to be in bondage to any habit or uh, appetite or whatever. So, you know, he, he's already starting to say, wait a minute. You've got to look at this again. This all things are lawful, 
There's a lot of things you've got to consider before you can just say that. And then this food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Now, I think their point was that sexual immorality is just kind of a normal, natural urge. You know, you get hungry, you've got to eat. And you feel a certain way, and you just need to be immoral. I mean, you know, that's kind of part of your body. I mean, you know, God just gave it to you that way, and so it's just part of the natural thing. You wouldn't want to repress that, would you? It's that kind of that idea. And Paul says, but God will do away with both of them. I mean, there are no permanent plans for food or stomach in God's uh, kingdom. But he says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It is absolutely not true that the body was made for sexual sin. It is not. It was not. And we should never make that argument. That is not the purpose of our body. And, you know, that's settled. I mean, that's, that's, that's the truth about that. But he goes on to say, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up to his power. The Lord raised, the Lord, the Lord was raised and will be raised. There is a continuing plan for the body. People sometimes say, well, it's just my body. You know, it doesn't matter what happens to my body. Well, yeah, it does. Your body's going to be raised. Your body's not something just to be gotten rid of, you know, unless you didn't have this body. Since it'll be raised, it's important how we behave in our body. Our stomach won't be raised, but our body will. I understand it'll be changed. But one of the points that Paul deals with a decent amount in Corinthians is the idea of the bodily resurrection. Because the Corinthians, I suspect, affected by Greek philosophy, after all, Achaia was Greece. That's where they were, just down the road from Athens. That they probably believed, or some of them did anyway, that the body was, you know, kind of this matter, material thing that just kind of you know, a prison house for the true self, the soul, that longed to finally discard the body and be reabsorbed back into whatever the real was. That was kind of the Greek philosophy. That's not Bible philosophy. You know, God intends for our body to be raised, and he doesn't intend for us to belittle the body, or just say, ah, you know, it's just the body. You know what? Me that did it. It was just my body. Well, our body is me. You can't, we can't divorce ourselves from our body like that. That's what Paul's saying. So it does matter what you do in your body. And he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It's really worse than that. You know, fortifying the use of the do you know in these 15 verses so far. But he says, you're members of Christ. Now what do you think about taking a member from Christ's body and taking it away and making a member of a prostitute? Just the idea of cutting off a member from Christ's body is bad, and then making them one with a prostitute, he makes the point that in fornication, you become one with a heart. Now, think about that in a couple ways. First of all, if somebody's sexually immoral, he just call them a heart. I mean, they're, they're prostituting their body to something that God does not approve of. So that's just his way of looking at that in a rather forceful way. <laughs> But furthermore, there is no such thing as casual sex. You know, people talk about it, you know, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a, you know, not fun or whatever. That's not the way God made us. And he points out that when God made Adam and Eve, 
He said the two will become one flesh. God's design for our physical union is that it's much deeper than just, oh, well, it's just kind of, you know, casual. No, it affects us profoundly. We were made to be united with our wife in a very deep way. And so, if a Christian commits fornication, they're taking a member away from Jesus and uniting it with a harlot, becoming one with her. That is unthinkable. That is absolutely wrong, and we can't do that. So he says, flee immorality. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But look at verse 18. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. I think that's their argument again. I think they were saying, well, every sin you commit is outside your body. No, it's not really with your body, it's outside your body. And, you know, we try to distance ourselves from what we do. You know, it wasn't me. How many people do that? You know, they do something stupid. They say something wrong. It wasn't me. Who was it? You know, we try to just kind of say, you know, what I do isn't the same as who I am. Well, Jesus says, the fruit depends on the kind of tree. You know, you don't grow grapes on thistles. You know, so if you bear the fruit, it's because the tree was bad. You know, and so you can't say, well, I know I did that. I know I said that, but it really wasn't me. Yes, it was. And it reflects our heart. And so every sin that a man commits is outside the body is really not true. And furthermore, he says the immoral man sins against his own body. Other sins may be just by means of the body, but fornication assaults and defiles the very sanctity of the body. It's profoundly self-destructive. It is, it is against the body in a deeper way than even other sins are. So don't use this outside the body business, especially not the sexual sin. And furthermore, in verses 19 and 20, fornication desecrates the temple of the Holy Spirit. It dishonors God in His own temple. You're a, a Jew, and you go into that sacred space, Maybe you're the high priest. And that one time a year, you burn the incense back there in the Holy of Holies to kind of perform that cloud. And you go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. You would have been very careful in God's holy temple not to do anything you shouldn't do. Can you imagine in the Holy of Holies taking in some woman who's not married to and being with her in the presence of God. That is unthinkable. God dwells in his people. He dwells in our body. To use my body for sexual sin is to desecrate God's holy sanctuary. That's what he said. He said you were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourselves. Therefore glorify your God, God in your body. He keeps talking about the body. You know, uh, the, the, the body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body in verse 13. 
He talks about the body we raised in verse 14. Talks about us being members of Christ in verses 15 to 17. Talks about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is in verse 19. And in verse 20, we were bought with a price. You know, our body is God. And so, we must respect the Lord and not be sexually immoral. Now think about things that that means. He says to flee sexual sin. Think about ways we can do that. Our eyes must flee. Second Peter 2 talked about the people who have eyes full of adultery. There's plenty of people who do. They can't keep their eyes off of the wrong pages of the internet and the wrong videos and people and pornographic TV and commercials and things like that. If we're going to flee fornication, we've got to bounce our eyes. We may have to get rid of some of our internet access or whatever it is we need to do. We've got to have our mind flee. Looking to lust, fantasizing, is sinful. We've got to avoid inappropriate relationships. You can't tell me I'm fleeing immorality when I, as a married man, start developing an overly chummy relationship with some other woman. Taking her to dinner, talking about personal things, you know, having an ongoing text or constant calling or whatever. We don't do that. That's not fleeing. Oh, we're not, we're not doing anything. You know, well, you're not fleeing immorality. You know, the same thing would be true of any relationship with somebody that I have no right to. I have no business being in a close relationship with somebody that I have no business being in that relationship. That's not fleeing. Or you think about physical contact. It's not fleeing. You know, Paul said for the young man Timothy to treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. The way to treat a younger woman in all purity is treat her as a sister. You can't do it with your sister, don't do it with the younger woman until she's your wife. I think that's his point in 1 Peter 5. And we, of course, need to avoid being a stumbling block. We can lead people on and induce them into falling into lust and sinful uh, you know, sexual attitudes. So, fleeing immorality because this is such a serious sin. So he's dealt with the man living with his father's wife in chapter 5, but now he comes down to just dealing with sexual sin in general. I think that that's an issue for him. That's a temptation for him. It's not easy to overcome that, but it must be overcome. You know, he does not mince words here. This is a strong passage. If he didn't mean this seriously, I don't think he says this. So if that's an issue for us, we've got to deal with it. There's a lot of help. Talk to a strong Christian that can guide you and help you. Uh, but don't, don't keep up. Do whatever it takes. Thoughts and comments. Joe. See the structure of five and six similar to like eight, nine, and ten. You know, the odd thing is he's got that section on the uh, taking a brother to law. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that they were so tolerant with this man living with his stepmother. 
So intolerant about personal grievances, and then back to sexual sin in general. That maybe 6, 1 to 8 is kind of a reflection of just the contrast. So you won't even judge this immoral man, but you're sure ready to take your brother to the judge. Something like that. So these kind of that's kind of almost a parenthesis, uh, kind of the opposite side of chapter 5. That's the way I think of it, Joe. And also the fact that at the end of chapter 5 and uh, verses 9 through 11 are very similar language. And the word unrighteous is used in verse 1 and in verse 9 uh, makes a showing. You're living unrighteous. You can't make these judgments because you're living immoral yourself. Uh, I think that would help explain why they can't judge this man who's in gross immorality. They have to guilt themselves, kind of like what David uh, with, uh, with his son. Okay, I hadn't thought about that way. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Scott. You talked about uh, people not uh, suppressing their, their wants and satisfying their wants themselves. And even Paul later in Corinthians chapter 9, uh, he tells us that he, he says, I come under my body and bring it in subjection. He, he himself, he gives us, he's, his own, he's using himself as an example to show that you have to suppress those things because God considers it a sin. Yes, and you know, we have just listened too long to the world's way of looking at uh, our bodies and our sexual nature. God saw it wasn't good for man to be alone. By his grace and mercy, he designed woman to be a suitable help for man. And he arranged for them to be married in a very close union and bond. And God made the sexual union as kind of the seal of that bond, as a special closeness that they share never with anyone else. That kind of is the uh, a kind of a, a special joy and privilege and, and a blessing in that relationship. You know, we think of this as being something... I don't know, to be exploited for our own personal glory or gratification. But really, God made us sexual beings so that we could give ourselves to our mate. We really just accepted a perverted view of what all this is all about. And so then, then we almost think of ourselves, well, okay, I'll deprive myself. No, no, we don't understand what it is if we're thinking about that. We need to think in terms of this is a something special that I save for this special relationship I will one day perhaps have with my wife or my husband. That will be something we will never share in any way. Once, it, once we see how God looks at this, then it, it's we're not depriving ourselves of anything. We we are preserving a special blessing God's given. We need to start thinking of things the way God thinks of them. And not let the world change the, the outlook and viewpoint on them. I don't know if that was clear. Other thoughts? Okay, we are going to do a song segment. Um, I had a couple of them kind of right together, so we're uh, 